Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to As a Woman. Today, I'm talking about adenomyosis. I get asked about this topic all the time. It is an abnormality of the uterus, and it may be something that you have never heard of. It is a cousin, perhaps if we say, to endometriosis, which is something that more people have heard of. But today I'm going to break down what adenomyosis is, what you should know about it, the symptoms, how it impacts your fertility and your pregnancy, and what you can do. Before we dive into that, I do want to talk about this week's fertility in the news. So this week, I am talking about an article that's published in Medical News Today called Alcohol May Affect Fertility Treatment Success, But Caffeine Appears Safe. This is actually an article that is talking about a recently published study. So this published study was on October 19th of 2022, so very recent, and it's called The Association Between Caffeine and Alcohol Consumption and IVF ICSI Outcomes, a Systematic Review and Dose Response Meta-Analysis, and this was published in a Scandinavian journal of OBGYN. So The nice thing about this is that it is a review looking at many different studies and trying to compile different results. So when you do a meta-analysis, what you do is you look at a variety of different studies and you try to combine them together to increase the power and to see what the net result of these actions are. So this research included almost 27,000 people in the analysis, and research studies that were eligible included seven studies on caffeine and nine studies on alcohol. So the take-home was that researchers did not find an association between caffeine use and fertility treatment success, so IVF success. However, the findings on alcohol consumption were significant. They found that alcohol use was associated with decreased success rates with IVF anixi. So if we look at exactly what the study was showing, it said women's alcohol consumption was associated with decreased pregnancy rate success when weekly consumption was greater than 84 grams. Men's alcohol consumption was associated with a decreased live birth rate. So you get a positive pregnancy test, but you have a higher chance of miscarrying after weekly consumption of more than 84 grams. I don't think most of us think about our alcohol in terms of grams. So 84 grams is approximately six drinks a week. And I have many patients who might drink that. You know, that's less than one drink per day or a few drinks on the weekend. So you can easily see how somebody might get to six drinks or more. 
One interesting thing about the study is it did show no association between caffeine consumption and pregnancy or live birth rate. Now, we have had caffeine restrictions, however, for quite a while, or we have had recommendations where we tell people they can drink less than 250 milligrams of caffeine a day. They can have one to two cups of coffee. And so I believe that is probably part of why we are seeing caffeine having no impact. And that's because we have been giving recommendations to have caffeine in moderation. So don't drink five cups of coffee a day like you very well might do if you are not pregnant. However, many times there have been no recommendations when it comes to alcohol. I've had people say alcohol doesn't matter at all. Oh, plenty of pregnancies occur when somebody has alcohol on board. And this is a really good study, I think, telling us something that we know or that we should be saying. Consumption of moderate to high alcohol, so six or more drinks per week, has been associated with negative outcomes with IVF and ICSI. So if you are going to go through fertility treatments, I know my patients want to control everything that they can to try to get that high chance of success. Remember that alcohol is not benign. It does cause some inflammation. Your body has to heal up from it. So if you want to have a drink here or there, that likely doesn't have an impact. So if it's a celebration and you want to have a glass of champagne, you can feel that this study is helping support that that one drink's not going to make a difference. Now, if you're pregnant, you should have no drinks. We do know that fetal alcohol syndrome can be devastating and can occur with any alcohol when you're pregnant. So the recommendation is no alcohol when you're pregnant. But if you're trying to conceive, sporadic alcohol use or low levels should not be an impact for your fertility. I think just to further support this, when you look at some of the individual studies, some included studies also demonstrate that alcohol consumption was associated with decreased fertilization, decreased blastocyst development, and increased miscarriage rate. One study also had an abstinence group where there was zero alcohol use, and female partners who had zero alcohol had the highest rate of becoming pregnant with IVF versus those who drunk like normal, whatever their normal drinking habits were. So I think that this study, this meta-analysis is helping us feel like your lifestyle does matter and that changes can have a huge impact. So doing something different because you're trying to conceive or you're going through IVF can impact your outcome, your pregnancy rates, and your live birth rates. All right, so just more evidence that focusing on being your healthiest self is going to be the best. Let's switch gears and talk about what we're here to talk about, and that is adenomyosis. What is adenomyosis if you've never heard about it? So the official medical definition is presence of ectopic, not cancerous, but abnormal. Ectopic means in an abnormal location, endometrial glands and stoma in the myometrium. So the endometrial glands, the endometrial stroma, that's the tissue of the endometrium. What you think about bleeding off every month, that's your endometrium. But you have some of that tissue in the myometrium or the muscular portion of the uterus. So if we think about what endometriosis is in comparison, presence of endometrial glands and stroma outside the uterus, so in the peritoneal cavity, on the ovaries, on the intestines, underneath the uterus, but outside the uterus, that's endometriosis. Adenomyosis is presence of the endometrial tissue. So typically the lining inside the uterus that you shed inside the muscular portion of the uterus where it should not be. 
Anumiosis was first described back in 1860, and this was before we really had even descriptions of endometriosis, but this was diagnosed at hysterectomy. So when you take the uterus out, you could notice these abnormal tissue inside the uterus. So anumiosis has been around even longer than endometriosis because that was a surgical diagnosis specifically with laparoscopy looking at. So adenomyosis can be diagnosed right now without taking out the uterus and looking inside of it. So how do you diagnose it? You can diagnose it sometimes with ultrasound, but MRI is really the treatment or the diagnostic modality of choice for diagnosis. So if there's a debate, MRI is going to be the best way to see if you have adenomyosis or not. Adenomyosis can sometimes be asymptomatic, so some people have no idea that they have it, and we think that the condition can affect a large number of people, up to 20 to 50% of people with a uterus may have adenomyosis. Although it has been found in adolescents and younger people, it typically occurs between ages of 35 to 50 with one of the following, history of a prior pregnancy, and history of endometriosis, or history of uterine fibroids. So it is much more common in somebody who is Paris, who's had a child before, and that may be part of the pathogenesis or the mechanism by which the endometrial tissue invades that myometrium. So what are the symptoms? Again, some people have no symptoms, but the symptoms can be really quite vague. You can have painful periods, so that's called dysmenorrhea. You can have heavy periods, so that's called menorrhagia. You can have abnormal bleeding. You can have pelvic pain. You might have painful intercourse or dyspareunia. You may have infertility and you may have an enlarged uterus. Sometimes the word boggy is used by medical providers. It just feels larger and like squishier, less firm than a normal uterus should be. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels, 
by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No long shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. So if we think about why adenomyosis occurs, there's a few different hypotheses. Just like endometriosis, we don't really know the true answer here. But if we think about some of the hypotheses that can happen, the top one is trauma. So some type of trauma at the endometrial-myometrial interface can cause increased peristalsis at the junctional zone. So what this means is that the uterus is dynamic, right? The tissue is always changing over. You have endometrium, you bleed it off. You have these almost like stem cells, kind of this basal layer that regenerates new endometrial tissue, you bleed it off. Now, if something happens and that process gets damaged and you have damage to that basal layer, does that potentially cause endometrial tissue to migrate into the uterus instead of just outwardly? And so this is why having prior uterine surgery, so fibroids taken out, prior DNC procedures, especially in the setting of like postpartum or an infection, or having a child because that placenta is invading into that layer and the uterus has to heal after that is one of the top hypotheses that exists. Now, there's also a hypothesis that it's just a further progression of endometriosis. So if you think about endometriosis, where the tissue migrates, again, either through lymph tissue or cells migrate out the fallopian tubes, we don't know the exact mechanism, but endometrial cells end up outside the uterine cavity, that potentially they invade the uterus from the serosa or the outside in. So instead of an inside-out mechanism, they go outside to in. Endometriosis does this in the ovaries too, right? We have endometriomas, which is an invasion of the ovary by that endometriosis tissue. And so this is something that some people think might be a cause. And then recent genetic evidence shows that there are some genes that are regulated abnormally inside the endometrium of people who have adenomyosis compared to controls. So it truly may be that you're inheriting a predisposition for your endometrium to just function abnormally, and there's very little you can do about it. So there's conflicting evidence about what it means. So maybe you don't know if you have it or not, those symptoms are very vague and are the exact same symptoms that can describe endometriosis or uterine fibroids and other gynecologic conditions. And maybe somebody's told you, it looks like you might have this on ultrasound, or I'm a little concerned about this. Maybe you have no idea. But what does it mean? Evidence has been conflicting, but there does seem to be a negative impact of adenomyosis on overall fertility. We think this is because it changes the normal function and structure of the uterus, and that can impact sperm. So if something's abnormal inside the uterus, that might impact how the sperm functions or how the uterus prepares for implantation. Maybe it has decreased receptivity. Maybe it has decreased in implantation or it doesn't have all the right implantation factors that it needs to. That being said, we definitely know that there's some people who have adenomyosis who have no change to success rates of embryo transfer, 
And so it really might be one of those things that has varying presentations and varying impact on fertility. So what does this mean, though, if you're going through fertility treatments or if you're trying to get pregnant? And what can you do about it? What medical treatments exist or surgical treatments or intervening in your IVF cycle? So there's really little evidence to help guide us on this, and that's pretty tough. But there are some studies, not randomized, so not the gold standard, but looking at IVF cycles and embryo transfers and looking at down regulation with a GnRH agonist, that's a medication like Lupron. So if you're going through IVF, you've probably heard of the medication called Lupron. It tells the pituitary gland to stop sending out LH and FSH. And so using that medication for one to three months prior to a pregnancy or prior to a transfer may improve pregnancy rates if you have adenomyosis. And I think this makes sense because long-term Lupron therapy, if you're not trying to get pregnant, can result in decreased tissue inflammation and decreased symptoms and local signs of adenomyosis. So potentially, if you decrease the inflammation inside the uterus, you're improving the receptivity or the ability for an embryo to implant. So it can also change some of the local estrogen environment because that's one of the cellular mechanisms why we think these cells respond abnormally to a high estrogen environment, very much like endometriosis cells do outside the uterus. And that Lupron may change the receptivity of those cells and change how the uterus is contracting or it's peristalsis and that might improve success rates. There's also something called high-intensity focused ultrasound. And there have been some case reports and small studies looking on if this can help. This is where you target treatment by a really high-intense ultrasound sound wave to see if it can help. And there's some studies that suggest this might decrease disease burden or might improve pregnancy rates, but there's really been no relevant study looking at this and infertility or trying to get pregnant or IVF outcomes. So I have not recommended this, nor have I seen anybody recommending this for patients. There have been some studies looking at treatment. Now, treatment is a big deal when it's surgical. So looking at surgical removal of adenomyosis. This can be called an adenomyomectomy or an adenomyosis resection. Now, before I dive into this, I do want to say surgery on your uterus is such a big deal. You only have one. And I, as every doctor who's out there, if they're a fertility doctor, has seen people who've had uterine surgery without being counseled on the potential risks damage to the uterus, scar tissue, inability for the uterus to function normally, and then subsequent risks with pregnancy, including need for C-section, risk of uterine rupture, and more. Adenomyosis is not like a uterine fibroid, which is a well-circumcised ball of myometrial tissue inside different areas of the uterus, but an intramural fibroid is inside the myometrium. So let's compare a uterine fibroid to an adenomyosis resection. Adeno is much more invasive. It's much more attached. It's less circumscribed. It's broader. I have really seen people have their uterus destroyed by having surgeons go in and try to resect this out. It doesn't mean that surgery is the wrong answer, but it really does mean you need to understand what you're trying to do and make sure your surgeon 
has really good experience. So when you look at surgery in meta-analysis and other studies, there seems to be a small improvement in fertility outcomes, but there's not really any comparative studies like Lupron versus doing surgery, something that is less invasive. So there's really not an answer to what you should do when it comes to that. There is one case report about surgical approach and fertility. And in this, there were 466 patients who were followed after an adenomyosis surgery. 22 of them got pregnant. 17 of them needed IVF. Five of them conceived naturally. So that's a low pregnancy rate from all these surgeries. The majority of people needed IVF. Would their outcome have been different if they had just done IVF and a Lupron suppression and not even done surgery? As we are seeing a trend towards really keeping the uterus very sacred, we are doing less surgery for fibroids unless you are really having debilitating symptoms, terrible pain, terrible periods, terrible blood loss, needing blood transfusions. But we really are leaving many fibroids in that intramural area of the uterus, unless they're on the inside of the cavity, which is very different. But fibroids inside that myometrium, we are allowing bigger and bigger ones to stay if it's not distorting the inner cavity, because the damage you might do by surgically removing it may not be worth the potential benefit. And so personally, I do not recommend surgical removal of adenomyosis for fertility. If you have debilitating symptoms, I feel like we can separate what's best for your life versus if you want to get pregnant. But I usually recommend, hey, I see this. You might have, and here's how I cancel patients. I see adenomyosis. You're likely to have decreased pregnancy rates naturally compared to your peers. The options are really limited because treatment for adenomyosis is really counter to treatment for getting pregnant. So the two treatments that we have to offer right now include either surgery, which potentially could lead to scar tissue or damage of the uterus, plus a long recovery period and potential complications with pregnancy, or we could lean towards IVF faster, knowing that when it comes to an embryo transfer, we're going to do a suppression period with Lupron beforehand. And I've even seen some people using a Lupron plus a letrozole protocol, which is something we see successful with endometriosis as well. So I would favor a more medical approach with IVF over a surgical approach because that uterus is so important. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. 
Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Now, I think it's really important to also mention other outcomes or complications that we do see with adenomyosis. And because it is an invasion of the uterus, we do see some pregnancy complications. So one of the most common is preterm birth. So giving birth prior to 37 weeks. And so we do see higher rates of preterm birth in people who have adenomyosis than those who do not. Again, this can be complicated because we also see higher rates of preterm birth with IVF. A lot of patients who might have or know they have adenomyosis might go through IVF. So there's some confounding because if you don't have any infertility, you might not have these ultrasounds or MRIs of your uterus. You might have no idea that you have this. And so you may not be included in the study. So there is some selection and population bias by who we can study because knowing you have the disease, you're already at higher risk for it because you have infertility and you're going through fertility treatments very likely. However, there is a higher risk of preterm birth. There's also a higher risk of preeclampsia if you have adenomyosis. And so that is pregnancy-induced hypertension where you have high blood pressure or pregnancy. Again, also limited because the exact same reason. People who have infertility as a population and people who use IVF tend to have higher rates of preeclampsia than the general population. There have been mixed results on gestational diabetes, so not enough to draw any conclusions from. And then there was a review and meta-analysis that showed there was not a significant increase in fetal death in people who had or did not have adenomyosis. It also appears that there's a higher rate of miscarriage in people who have adenomyosis than in people who do not. So in a literature review, there was a 31% miscarriage rate in people who had adenomyosis compared to a 12% in people who do not. So that was an increased risk. Now, what we do not know or have clarity on is that can that risk be reduced by surgery or by IVF with pituitary suppression with Lupron prior to transferring the embryo. So I think the hard thing here is like a lot of other topics in women's health, we really have limited research to guide our decisions on. And so my recommendations lead back to the very beginning. Your period is a vital sign. And so if you have very heavy periods, soaking through clothes is not normal. If you have really painful periods, canceling dinner plans with your friends is not normal. If you have pain with intercourse, especially with deep penetration, not just insertional pain, but in certain positions, really deep penetration is painful. If you need blood transfusions or you have very irregular periods, please get these evaluated. You deserve to know what's going on with your body. If there is nothing that is found, that is fine. If there is suggestion of potential adenomyosis, do you need further imaging or can they tell based on ultrasound that this is something they think you have? If so, consider seeing a fertility doctor to get a full workup and understand what you're dealing with. Lower threshold to going towards IVF because you can use Lupron to suppress with those embryo transfer cycles. And that might be beneficial for helping you get pregnant over natural conception rates, and also potentially decreasing some of those pregnancy complications. If somebody wants to operate on you, you want to really ask about their experience with adenomyosis and what their plan is. Would favor somebody who's a minimally invasive surgeon who has lots of experience with this. Understand that your symptoms with your period are real. 
We don't understand the full disease mechanism, much like endometriosis, but it does appear that inflammation is a large part of it. So whatever you can do to decrease inflammation within your world is probably going to benefit you. So focusing on the foods you eat and what you put in and on your body, taking some supplements that have antioxidants, that may be helpful. So when we think about this, remember that adenomyosis is more common if you've had a child or prior uterine surgery before. You do see a higher risk of infertility in people who have adenomyosis. And infertility treatments like IVF do appear to be very helpful in this population. If you are not trying to get pregnant, adenomyosis, very much like endo, because it is hormone sensitive, tends to be managed with hormonal treatments. Or when you go into menopause, it tends to go away. So even though it is a chronic disease, once your body no longer makes estrogen, it is less a problem for you. All right, friends. Well, I know it's always hard talking about a topic that has limited research. I hope this at least gives you some idea that adenomyosis exists and what it is, and at least a starting place for understanding this disease. I'm going to now answer some of your questions for fertility's sake. So every week we do FFS where I answer your fertility-related questions. You can ask these every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call the voicemail line, which is 657-229-3672, and you can leave a voicemail and we will answer your question. So here we go. What are some tips for handling the side effects of letrozole for IUI? So letrozole works by telling the brain that there is less estrogen because it's called an aromatase inhibitor and it inhibits the conversion to estrogen in the bloodstream. Easiest way to think about it is that your body still makes estrogen, but letrozole kind of eats it up in your bloodstream. So suddenly your brain says, oh my gosh, there's less estrogen and it sends out a higher signal of FSH and therefore that signal is stronger and can get an egg to grow if you're not ovulating. So hopefully you'll ovulate or potentially more than one egg to grow if you already ovulate and you're trying to use it for super ovulation. We are going to see more people using letrozole because Clomid has been taken off the market in some places and it's a little harder to get. So that's another oral ovulation induction agent. So previously you could use either of them, but now we're seeing more people using letrozole sooner or it's the only thing you get. Now, letrozole is typically more tolerated than Clomid. So that's typically our more side effect inducing medication because it actually binds to estrogen receptors. It's something called a selective estrogen receptor modulator and causes profound low estrogen symptoms. However, some people are really, really sensitive to estrogen. And so when their body senses a decrease, they don't feel good. So the most common side effects are just fatigue, feeling more irritable, overall maybe having a headache and having less energy. That typically is going to remedy as soon as you have an egg that starts to grow because it's going to make estrogen and make you feel better. So ultimately, I just say, know that you're going to be in a low estrogen time, kind of like how you might feel right before or the very start of your period and try to plan accordingly so that during that five days while you're taking it, maybe you're not working out as hard or you don't have hopefully a big presentation at work if you can help it. And you can just allow your body a little more grace and time for sleep and time to take it a little bit easier just because that estrogen level is lower. All right, the next question is how many embryos is recommended for two children? So if you are going through IVF and you're doing genetic testing of your embryos, we can often view this embryo cohort 
as something for fertility preservation. So that means some of the embryos we can save and they can become your children later. Each genetically normal embryo typically has about a 65% chance of live birth, so baby you hold in your arms rate, which is not 100. It is not perfect math. I've had people get pregnant with their first embryo transfer and now have three kids. I've had people who take three embryos to get to a baby. However, in general, for most people, we like to plan on two euploid embryos per child that you want at a minimum. So if you want four kids, I'd love to have eight normal embryos. If you want two kids, I'd like to have at least four normal embryos. Depending on your age and other factors, you might be able to achieve that right now. No big deal. You also might need multiple cycles. So the younger you are, more of your eggs are going to be genetically normal. The healthier you are, more of your eggs are going to be genetically normal. And the more eggs you have, you have a higher denominator. So 50% of 20 is more than 50% of 10. And it's just math. So there's no shame if you need multiple cycles to achieve that embryo goal. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it can take longer. Yes, it is not fair. Yes, it costs more money. Yes, it's physically more challenging to get the eggs from subsequent months. But ultimately, your entire life could be different if you want to have a big family. So please make sure that your fertility doctor, if you're going through IVF, is talking about both your now and your future goals. All right. Is lupus anticoagulant treatable? So this is a good question. Lupus anticoagulant is one of the antibodies that we test for something called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. These should be checked in anybody who's had recurrent miscarriages because it is an autoimmune clotting disorder that is increased in severity and only really becomes apparent when you're pregnant. So if I had this normal Natalie walking down the street, totally fine. The moment I get pregnant, suddenly now this autoimmune disease kicks in and I have an increased tendency to have blood clots that can be small and can block the blood vessels inside the placenta and can cause me to have a pregnancy loss. It's a hard diagnosis because the antibodies aren't accurate if you're pregnant. So you have to wait till the pregnancy resolves. And then officially you need to check them twice, months apart. And you check lupus anticoagulant, beta-2 glycoprotein, and anticardiolipin antibody. There's three different ones. And you need lab criteria and clinical criteria. The short answer is if you have one of these antibodies positive and you meet clinical criteria of having loss, then... Yes, it is treated with both aspirin and a blood thinner like Lovenox, a daily preventive blood thinner once you are pregnant. And that keeps your blood thinner so that it will not have that clotting impact of the placenta. It's not really treated if you're not pregnant. So again, normal Natalie not pregnant is not on lifelong blood thinners, but when you get pregnant, treatment is definitely recommended. All right, thoughts on InvoCell. So InvoCell is a really interesting option for us to try to have IVF in a more affordable way for the right patient. So if we think about when IVF was very first invented, it was really a way for us to bypass tubal factor. So if your fallopian tubes were blocked and there was no way to get pregnant, you can't have egg and sperm meet inside the body. We need to take an egg out, fertilize it with sperm and put it back in. InvoCell is trying to do that in a more affordable way. So how most people do InvoCell is you use a minimal approach to stimulation because the device only holds about 10 eggs. So if you have 30 eggs per month available, I'm not trying to 
get all 30 eggs because I can't use them all. So I'm really trying to just get about 10 eggs to grow. So you can save money in the cost of medications. You undergo an egg retrieval still, so same procedure, anesthesia, needle through the vagina into the ovaries. You take the eggs out, you put them inside the device, and you load the device with sperm, and then you put it in the vagina for five days. And so the vagina serves as your incubator. And inside this device, egg and sperm are allowed to meet safely and hopefully form an embryo. You pull the device out five days later, pick a good embryo or two, and put it back into the body in an embryo transfer. Now for the right patient, I love it. I love it. And I have people who have babies who otherwise would not have been able to do so. The right patient is somebody who is young, Their embryos are likely to be genetically normal. They only want one child. There's no sperm abnormality. So I feel confident the sperm can fertilize an egg inside the device. And typically your cause of infertility is either ovulation or tubal factor. I do not like it for unexplained because what if fertilization is your issue? What if genetics are your issue? I'm not helping you overcome those things. So for me, it's a young patient. Diagnosis is either tubal or ovulatory. Their semen analysis is perfectly normal, and you only want one child. You're the candidate for Envocell. The reason I don't like it is I see a lot of people who want three kids going and doing Envocell because their clinic offered it as a cheaper, more affordable option, but they're only getting pregnant maybe now, or maybe they don't even get pregnant with their embryo, and then they have to turn around and pay for full fledged IVF. Sometimes IVF is smarter based on your family goals or your certain parameters. And so it's really important to have a conversation with your doctor. When used in the wrong patient, Invisil can be devastating to still pay $10,000 and have no fertilization or have no embryos to transfer because there was a sperm abnormality. It's not treatment of choice for that. So I think it's a great option, but patient selection is key. Your thoughts on the endometrial receptivity test after a failed transfer. So the ERA is the endometrial receptivity analysis. This is an endometrial biopsy that is timed when you would do an embryo transfer. The downside to this is you go through an entire transfer prep protocol, which takes weeks. And instead of doing an embryo transfer, you take a biopsy sample of the uterus and it gets sent off to a lab to look at estrogen, progesterone receptors and try to tell us the window of implantation, a peak receptivity. And so do you need more or less progesterone? This test got introduced into practice without having the most robust literature because many of us and our patients are desperate for answers, especially in the setting of repeated miscarriage or implantation failure. We were quick to adapt this test for that population. What has happened is many places force every patient to go through this test before even your first transfer or after one failed, which do not meet the study criteria that the test was first evaluated on, which is multiple pregnancy losses or failed implantations. A recent study came out looking at using the ERA in everybody after one failed embryo transfer. Remember, success rate for a genetically normal embryo is 65% live birth, meaning a third, if not more than a third of these are not going to result in a positive test. So applying an ERA to all of those is a huge population. What they found out is not just that the ERA made no difference, but people who had an abnormal ERA and then did their transfer and made the changes as recommended by the ERA had a lower chance of pregnancy than the people who had had one failed transfer and just did another transfer at the standard 
day six of progesterone exposure. And so to me, this test is not for everyone. This is further support that the test has been too broadly used by too many practices. It is a conversation and informed decision making with patients because that decision is really hard if you only have one or two embryos. And it might depend on your other medical history or your pregnancy history if you've had loss naturally or not. So I never would say I would never do it. If you only have two embryos and you fail the first and you really think that the ERA is worth it to you for the second after we talk about it, absolutely. But I think the study is telling us that the population who benefits from the ERA is probably very small and very specific. And somebody who's just had one transfer not succeed, which is common. That's why we say you need more than one embryo per child is not the right population. And that changing your transfer date based on this might actually decrease your pregnancy rates instead of improving them. So honest conversation with your doctor to try to decide what is the best for that. Thank you guys so much. I hope you liked this episode. As always, you can ask your questions every week on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call and you can leave a voicemail. Again, that number is 657-229-3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.